the Protestant reformer, uh, Martin Luther, said, when I get to heaven, I expect three surprises. Those who will be there in heaven that I did not expect to be there. Two, those missing that I thought would be there. But the greatest surprise of all will be that I am there myself. Surprises. Uh, We come to the end of Matthew 24 and 25, this Olivet Discourse, uh, this fifth and final lengthier sermon or discourse that Jesus uh, gives in preparing his disciples for his departure as he nears the cross and his resurrection and his ascension, the end of chapter 25, and he, and he concludes with this picture of the last day, a time in which all the nations will be gathered, and then he will separate all peoples uh, like a shepherd separate, separating sheep from the goats. Uh, Luther mentions three surprises. Here in this text, uh, Jesus reveals some startling surprises about the last day. So it's Matthew 25, beginning at verse 31. 31 through 46. Listen now to God's word. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If someone were to ask you the question, What is your identity? How would you respond? What words would you choose? If they were to ask you to describe who you are, what your character is like, how would you respond to that question? If they were to ask you, uh, who or what do you affiliate with, what would you say? What would people in our society or culture perhaps say? I think some might respond by answering, I'm conservative or I'm liberal. 
or I'm religious, or I'm secular. Or maybe they might answer economically, I'm of the middle class, or I'm affluent and rich, or I'm poor. Or by age, I'm young and youthful, or I'm elderly, I'm old. Or the kind of work they do, I'm white collar, blue collar. Or ethnicity or race, I'm white, Caucasian, African American, black, Asian, male, female. Or by personality, extrovert or an introvert, more sanguine, more melancholy. These are some of the ways that uh, the culture will separate and categorize and identify people. Just open the daily newspaper and one sees the prevalence of these kinds of categories by which people are identified. Some of these categories, of course, are indeed biblical. Male and female. We read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in the creation story, God made them male and female, which is not only deeply significant for what in part defines us as people, but relevant for defining the marriage relationship, life in the home, indeed life in the church. What about rich and poor? Another category the Bible recognizes in both the Old and New Testament, throughout the Old Testament, uh, the people of God were to serve and recognize the needs of the poor that there would be no poor among the covenant community. And in the New Testament, the Apostle James in James 2 uh, said, Show no partiality as you hold forth the faith of Christ. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and then a poor man in shabby clothes comes in, and you give attention to the rich, but you say to the poor man, You stand over there. Have you not made distinctions and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, the scripture there not only recognizes this category, but how the people of God can even show a kind of favoritism of one over the other. What about the category of race or ethnicity? Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile. Categories in scripture, Jew and Gentile. We're told in Revelation chapter 7, Uh, Another picture of the last day, we're told a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, ethnos, from all tribes and all people groups, gather and stood before the Lamb of God. And yet, as important as these biblical categories may be in playing a part in defining people, in the end, at the end of history, Jesus gathers and places all people into two and only two categories. When everything else that might define or give shape to people is stripped away, when the soul of man is exposed, his true and his core identity is revealed. And it is an identity that has an eternal consequence. This is how he ends the the, the sermon. The Olivet Discourse. In verse 46, some go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All people in the end will be gathered among the sheep or gathered among the goats. And so here Jesus brings us to the end. It's the consummation. It's the end of history. And he says in verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Notice how 
the Lord Jesus places himself at the very center of this event. How he himself highlights his own exaltation. It's all about him, and we see that emphasis repeated by these pronouns. Uh, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne, before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate the people. And he will place the sheep on his right. It's the glory of Christ that takes center stage and is on display. And it is before him that all are gathered. And it is by him that all the nations are separated. Then it says in verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right, The king. Isn't that wonderful how the Lord Jesus refers to himself as the king? As he says, uh, come you who are blessed by my father. It's not the father who's being referred to as the king here. Jesus is referring to himself as the king. And the king speaks. And what does the king say? Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. This is the kingdom that Jesus began preaching about in in chapter 4. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, believe in the gospel. This kingdom that Jesus inaugurated, he is now fast-forwarding, and it's now in its consummate, full state. This is the kingdom that we, as the people of God, will inherit. This is the picture of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21. It's the resurrection state where God will make his dwelling with his people. He will be our God. We will be his people. Revelation says he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, it says. We will not experience envy or bitterness. There will be no taint of sin. We will not know complaining or grumbling. We will have a perfect satisfaction in God. As we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, relationships will be in a state of perfect harmony where there is a sincere and natural love that will overflow one to another without end. And all together, our lives will be pointed to this great and awesome King as we experience ever-deepening aspects of His majesty and His character. Jesus says, come, take your inheritance. It's like being given keys to a brand new house, fully furnished, a mansion, a castle, whose hallways have no end, no end to the rooms. Exploring, experiencing God's new creation, new vistas of His beauty and majesty. Remember Jesus saying, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. I will come again and take you to myself. So Jesus says, come, inherit the kingdom to the sheep, to those on his right, the righteous. And then Jesus gives the reason. Verse 36. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And now come the surprises. 
Here's the first startling surprise. Verse 37. Then the righteous, the sheep, will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Thirsty and give you drink. When did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Surprise. These people seem to be completely unselfconscious in their compassion and in their care for others. They're unselfconscious. Their care and their compassion are most instinctive. It's natural. It's simply flowing out of their life. They're not thinking to themselves, if I go and visit the lonely in prison, th- this will put me in a certain stead or merit a right position with God. They're not thinking to themselves, if I go and distribute food to those in need or in poverty, this will prove the sincerity of my faith. They're not thinking that. When did we do these things? Yet indeed they did. Contrast the righteous here uh, with those Jesus speaks about back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, here Jesus, back in Matthew 7, is pointing us forward to the same, the end. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name. Do many mighty works in your name. And I will declare to them, I never knew you. These individuals back in Matthew 7 are not only fully aware of the service and the works that they're doing, but they're actually pointing to those things as the foundation for their salvation, for their justification. We see, to be sure, through the story of the sheep and the goats, how significant the works of mercy are. But, brothers and sisters, we must be reminded, works are never the cause of faith. They are the the fruit of our faith. The works that we carry out are the fruit. That's what comes out of the seed that was planted, the new life being born again, the growth, the watering, and fruit naturally flows out. It's what we're hearing about on Sunday evenings, the fruit of the Spirit. This is what comes out as a result of new life, what's been built and grounded in the soil of our hearts. First surprise they're unselfconscious in the works that they carry out. It naturally is flowing from them. They have a new spirit. They worship the king of kings. They're in his kingdom. Then comes a second surprise in verse 40. And the king will answer them, that is the righteous, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. This is Jesus responding to the question the righteous asked in verse 37. The righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And he says, I I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so the question is raised, who are these brothers that Jesus is referring to? Because it's one's relationship and treatment of the brothers that is the central evidence of the saving faith. It's what distinguishes them as the sheep, as the righteous. 
It is not uncommon for people uh, to believe that Jesus is referring to brothers who have a genetic relationship. This is people within your family. A more popular view, certainly popular today, is the view that these brothers refer to humanity in general. Particularly among humanity in general, those hurting, impoverished, needy. Well, it's true that in Scripture the church is called to exercise mercy and compassion to the world. Love. Paul said in Galatians 6, verse 10, Let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the household of faith. He distinguishes the household of faith from all people, and yet we should do good to all people, Paul says. Additionally, Jesus teaches us about love for our neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Uh, Compassion for those outside the covenant community, to be sure. But throughout Matthew's gospel, without exception, every time the word brother or brothers is used, it is used to refer to disciples. Spiritual kin. The church. The family of God. For example, we see back in chapter 12, verse 46, while Jesus was still speaking to the people, his mother and brother stood outside asking to speak to him, but he replied, Who is my mother and my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my father are my mother, my sisters, my brothers. The least of these, my brothers, this is the church, the people of God. That the fact that Jesus ends this whole sermon and all of it discourse by pointing to uh, love and compassion for other disciples as a central evidence of sincere faith raises the bar. It raises the value and significance of his church. This church he promised to build back in chapter 16. This church to whom he gave the keys of the kingdom to open and close the door to heaven as the word of God and the gospel goes forth. Uh, This church that he promised an inheritance and the glory to come. These, These pictures of visiting the brother in prison, clothing the brother naked, feeding the hungry brother, welcoming the wandering brother, these are pictures of love for one another, for the people of God. And love for brothers and sisters can be hard. C.S. Lewis said that it's just easier to love those you're fond of, those you happen to like, uh, who share similar interests, who share similar perspectives, who share similar personality. But friends, love goes beyond fondness and likability. To love well To love in a Christ-like way means suffering, personal cost, personal pain. Isn't that what Jesus commanded to his people, his disciples in John 13? Love one another as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Jesus is the paradigm. It is his sacrificial love on the cross that not only accomplished for us our salvation and our redemption, 
but indeed exemplifies for us what this love looks like. It looks like leaving my personal world of comfort and ease to know the heart, to know the pain, to know the need uh, of another, another brother, another sister. Is there a brother or sister you need to forgive? Or one you need to ask forgiveness from? Is there a brother or sister that you need to demonstrate particular care and compassion for? Someone you need to draw close to? Uh, These pictures of clothing the, the brother naked, feeding, providing drink, visiting, welcoming... They all have a relational closeness and proximity here in view. And why love in this way? That's the third surprise. Perhaps the greatest surprise of all in this story. Verse 40. And the king will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. What a remarkable thing that Jesus is teaching. That when you fed, when you visited, when you clothed, when you welcomed a brother or sister in Christ, you fed, you visited, you clothed, you welcomed Christ himself. I was hungry. I was naked. I was sick. Jesus views his relationship and union with his disciples, his people, as so close, so intimate, that whatever you do to his people, you're doing to him. Now, he's already taught this to the disciples back in chapter 10, verse 40. He said, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. And whoever gives one of these little ones, that term little ones is coming from the same word and language as the least of these, least of these my brothers, whoever gives one of the, these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. The scripture speaks of this way elsewhere. Remember Paul, the apostle, who was Saul on the road to Damascus. Here Saul was persecuting the church. In Acts chapter 9, he is on his way to search and bind Christians to continue persecution toward these followers of the way. And there he sees a great light, and he falls to the ground, and he hears a voice saying to him, and what does the voice say? Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul's persecution of the church was a direct persecution of Christ himself. There is a sense in which what you do with the church, you do to Christ. What you say and what I say about the church we are saying about Christ. What you think of his church, we are thinking of him. Because his church is his body. And his body is the one for whom he suffered and gave his life to cleanse, to redeem. It is his bride. 
His church may be stubborn at times. This is not a, one of the surprises. It may be sinful at times. It may be backbiting at times. It may be rude at times. That's true. That's, that's why we fit in well. Right? That's supposed to be funny. But it's his bride. It is his chosen for whom he suffered and gave his life and was risen. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just as the kingdom and inheritance of the saints was prepared, so eternal punishment was prepared for those rejecting Christ. And they say a similar word. Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, sick, and in prison? And he will answer, as you did not do, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Their view and their relationship to the church is evidence of their view and their relationship to Christ. It's not always easy to be called uh, sheep. Sometimes in Scripture, sheep are viewed as quite weak, dependent creatures. Our Lord has told us, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst wolves. There's a weakness within them. Or he looked on them and had compassion. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Or we all like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53 tells us. There's a weakness in them, a dependence. They're wanderers. But here... Here you want to be a sheep. Theirs is the inheritance. They are the ones who belong to the shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. It's for the sheep. Yes, we all like sheep have gone astray. But the Lord, Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him, the Lord Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. D.A. Carson And I'll conclude with these words. D.A. Carson writes this, The church itself is not made up of natural friends. It's made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. And how true that is as we step back and look at the church throughout the world. Christians come together, he says, not because they form a natural attachment, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for the sake of Jesus Christ. That's what binds us together. Not so much a fondness or likability, but the love of Jesus Christ that has been poured out for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in the clarity of your word. How we thank you for your grace, O God, in the redemption that you have accomplished through your Son for the sheep, those you robe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We we pray, O Lord, that we would know 
deeper and deeper levels of what this love is. Love one another as I have loved you. By this all men will know that you are my disciples. And Lord, may we experience that love by basking and resting in your love for us. Do that work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.